You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're back today to transition from our series on Ukraine and Russia, but we're going to hesitate for just a little while on Russia's efforts to re-advance itself into Eastern Europe, both physically and probably through influence. But since our last cast, a few updates. The pro-Western government of Moldova has almost fallen or fallen. And for those of you who have heard our podcast with former CIA agent and two-time Moscow station chief Rob Dannenberg, this was exactly what he predicted would happen. And he had some thoughts on that. We'll hyperlink the old cast. These developments follow Moscow's acute reduction of natural gas supplies to Moldova and inflation in that very small nation of 30%. Gasp. At the same time, in the United States, China's efforts to collect intelligence from the United States has come again into sharp focus with the downing of a Chinese surveillance balloon and its recovery from the ocean. This, of course, will be followed, you can be sure, by reverse engineering by U.S. intelligence scientists, who should not be underestimated, by the way. But against this backdrop, Congress and the executive branch have begun what they believe is a hard look at TikTok, which is the Chinese, in case you don't know, a Chinese-based social media platform owned by parent company ByteDance. And the question becomes whether or not it could be used to change American political thought, not just on an election-by-election micro level, but whether over a period of time it could be used to sow discourse, uh, sounds like Sun Tzu, right, as a means of weakening the country, and whether or not it would function basically as a vacuum for data on the United States population, some way to sort of ascertain some demographics and personal information not just of U.S. citizens, but in particular of Chinese Americans, who often in the eye of the PRC really oppose a threat to the Chinese Communist Party. But let's talk about what we can really assess, particularly when we're looking backwards and forwards at social media. What can we really ascertain in a scientific, reliable and data driven manner? So where do we turn for somebody who might understand what the limits are and what the possibilities are? Well, we decided to talk to Josh Tucker. He's a person that we think can answer some of these questions. He is a professor of politics, affiliated professor of Russian and Slavic studies. Wow, that's a lot. And an affiliated professor of data science at NYU. He is the director of NYU's Jordan Center on the Advanced Study of Russia and co-director of NYU's Center for Social Media and Politics and co-author and editor of the award-winning politics blog we are familiar with, which is The Monkey Cage. He also serves on the advisory board of the American National Election Study, the comparative study of electoral systems and numerous academic journals. He's the co-founder. I don't know where to stop. It goes on and on. It's really kind of amazing. He is the man to watch. And I can add that I have heard him personally, and he is amazing. I think he was recommended, for those of you who listened to the podcast with Nate Persili, that he thought we should talk to him a year ago. And we're just glad we're getting to it now. Josh, thanks for coming. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Elisa. Thanks for the super kind introduction. It's a real pleasure to be here to talk to you about, admittedly, uh, some difficult topics to talk about. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, we're not here with performative politics. Let's talk about real stuff. And because that really does matter at the end of the day. You focus much of your research on American elections. So, of course, I want to start by asking how you can explain to us, explain to our listeners how you go about collecting data on social media 
and what challenges that you might face or do face right now with respect to U.S.-based platforms in terms of data access and reliability? The reality is, is that you constantly face challenges when you're trying to collect this data. And I think the highest level bottom line is that in the absence of regulation, the types of regulation, which fortunately we are seeing now coming out of the EU and hopefully we'll see coming out of the US, whatever you do, you're ultimately at the mercy of the platforms. And so what are the options that you have? Nate and I wrote in our book, Social Media and Democracy in the last chapter, which is all about this subject of data access. When you're in a position like we are trying to do research on the impact of the platforms on society and on politics in particular, you have a couple of different options. One option is that you work independent of the platforms. So you try to get data without entering necessarily into agreements with the platforms, not collaboratively working on research with the platforms. And there's a bunch of different ways you can do that. You can scrape data from websites, although you have to, you know, at that point, you have to sort of worry about what the conditions of terms of service for accessing those websites are. You can use APIs, which are these automatic programming interfaces that the companies themselves set up to make data available to people who want to use data from the platform in their own work. Now, what's interesting about that is that in many times these APIs are set up because companies want for-profit businesses to be using their data to be using what's produced by the platform and researchers are kind of a second thought. Sometimes there are dedicated APIs that are set up for researchers. Now, in either of these cases where you're sort of getting the data and gathering it on your own, when I say we're at the mercy of the platforms, we're at the mercy of the platforms because to work with an API, often you need permission to work with the API. So you have to ask for permission. You have to you know, propose a project that you're doing sometimes to get access to that permission. Even if you're just scraping data yourself, if you build all the apparatus to scrape the data yourself, if the platform goes and changes the way that they produce the data, all those scrapers that you built, all the ways you went to go about doing it, end up suddenly not working anymore. And that actually works with APIs too. You know, you set up a way to work with particular APIs, platform makes a change because they have corporate clients in mind. And all of a sudden the way that you've been collecting data for this project you've been working on for, you know, the last six months goes out the window. So it really is a case where, you know, there's nothing that guarantees us the right to get access to this data. So we have to be clever. We have to be creative. We have to be nimble, but ultimately it's not an efficient system for generating research in the public interest. Okay, so and we're talking about Twitter here. We're not really even, I guess, I don't know. I'm assuming that this would probably work with Facebook or any of the other platforms. I don't remember that they were very forthcoming. Yeah, all of the platforms are different from one another. And there's just different ways that you go about doing it. Some of the platforms we're interested in are these alt-right platforms where we're worried about radicalization and white nationalism and the people planning for violence and insurrections in Washington, D.C., you know, and there are ways that you can go about trying to get that data. There are other, Twitter has been the one where the vast majority of academic research was done, especially when people first started doing this kind of work about 10 or 12 years ago, because Twitter data was the easiest to access, both because it wasn't too hard to get access to the APIs and because the data itself was public. But there are lots of other platforms like Reddit data is all public and, you know, is fairly easy to collect. Facebook data and Instagram data has been much more complicated because a lot of the data on those platforms are private. Facebook also has gone through different phases in terms of accessibility of data with big, big changes following Cambridge Analytica. Things became much harder. There have been attempts that have been made by the platform we can talk about if you're interested to make more data available to researchers. And then there's YouTube, which you know has an API that we can use that, that allows us to download interesting you know, metadata from YouTube. And there's questions about Google, Google search, TikTok. So all these things are sort of, they're all different beasts, but they're all part and parcel of the same problem, which is the public has an interest in how these platforms are, are impacting society. 
And the platforms are at the end of the day, you know, to different varying degrees, controlling how people who are not employees of those platforms are able to access that data for research purposes. TikTok has really eclipsed any discussion of YouTube right now. And that's sort of where we are in terms of, of sort of the popular discourse. I know that you've taken a look at YouTube's algorithms, um, particularly the ones that recommend content. And this is not a small thing right now, because as you know, there's a case pending before the Supreme Court that is examining the limits of immunity under Section 230 of the Telecommunications Decency Act. You know, they've presented evidence that the algorithms push people to extremes. And when I say that, I mean things like, you know, the terror group ISIS, life-threatening pro-anorexia and pro-suicide groups, things that sound really terrifying to people, particularly parents. And I'm wondering what you can say about this algorithmic bias. I do wonder kind of what you think about this case that's pending. And with respect to that algorithmic bias, what limitations on data might have lessened the reliability of any conclusions that you might have reached through what looks like very careful research on your end. To begin with, when you say people have evidence that YouTube's algorithm pushes you to extremist content, well, the question is, what's that evidence, right? There are sort of lots of anecdotes, lots of stories about people starting off on the platform and ending up in particular places. But we set out at CSMAP to try to figure out if we could see systematically if this was what was going on on the platform. What we did now, I want to be very clear about this. We looked at whether or not YouTube's algorithm pushed people to extreme political content. So by extreme political content, what I mean is not necessarily that may be different from things like pro-anorexia or pro-suicide groups. We were just looking for whether if you started people at videos at random places on the political spectrum, and then you followed YouTube's recommendation algorithm for 5, 10, 15, 20 videos recommended, did it systematically take people who were at, started off at moderate content and move them to extremist content? If YouTube made recommendation data available to researchers, we could look at what had happened to actual people on the platform at huge scale. But YouTube doesn't make this data available. So what we ended up doing was we recruited a sample of people to join our study. And those folks agreed to install what's known as a web browsing tracker, where we had put a plug into Chrome so we would be able to see exactly what YouTube was recommending to them. And then the big challenge here, whenever you're trying to figure out the impact of the algorithm, is that anytime somebody clicks on a video, two things are going on simultaneously. The platform is deciding a list of videos to show people to choose from, and the person is deciding which of those to click on. So what we did in our study was we tried to isolate those from each other by recruiting people, and we said, okay, we want you to go to this video, and then we want you to follow this rule. And we randomly chose a bunch of different rules, like always click on the first recommendation or always click on the fifth recommendation. We had them do this for 20 sequences and we collected all the different videos that came back recommended from YouTube based on this progression, progression that people were making. And what we ended up with was just kind of fascinating. It's sort of fun to look at. We can't do this on a podcast here, but we got something that looks like a sort of digital footprint of YouTube's recommendation algorithm where we could see at each step of the way what was the spread ideologically of what YouTube was recommending? And then what was the video the person clicked on in line with our instructions? The bottom line here is what we found was that whereas these rabbit holes do exist where people start on moderate content and then they end up getting sucked into extremist content, it's actually fairly rare. In our study of these things that we did, it was only 3% of the time that we saw people move into something that was like looking like a rabbit hole. So it makes sense from a point of view that people will have anecdotal experiences with this. 
But it does not seem to be, from our research anyway, the dominant experience of what happens to people on the platform. So people really aren't that stupid or susceptible to influence, I think is the term that I have heard slung around in the past. But there's a belief that everybody's very fragile and they can be directed quite easily through sort of these algorithmic suggestions. That's a very interesting reaction. And, you know, I've heard other people from NYU who've gotten involved in some of these foundations that are trying to sort of go after the platforms outside of the litigation. I want to go back for a minute. Long before there was social media, you know, there's a guy out there named Chris Steyerwalt. You know, he testified before the January 6th committee. He's the guy who called Arizona for Biden when he was working at Fox News. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's kind of interesting when you listen to a guy like that who started in print journalism is he really looks back at the demise of local newspapers as sort of being the the point in time where our sort of lingua franca began to deteriorate. And the other thing that he emphasized was how broadcast television, and in particular, Rupert Murdoch's acquisition of Fox News, heralded the beginning of this fissure that we're seeing in the United States. I'm a little skeptical, maybe because I look at things like the Nazi foreign influence campaign in the run-up to World War II, which targeted individuals in areas that had not recovered from the Great Depression, which is not very different from what I think we're seeing right now. We've talked to your colleague, Alex Stamos. You know, he's mused to us that Americans really are divided themselves by their broadcast news choices. Have you seen anything through your research that would suggest that these divisions already really exist and they're not any worse than they ever were? They're just more obvious. So there's a lot bundled in there. So let me start with one thing. The first thing I want to do is give a shout out to actually to Marcus Pryor, who is a professor at Princeton who wrote this fantastic book called Broadcast Democracy. And Marcus makes the point in this book that you get a huge change when you go from the era of pre-cable news, right, where we had ABC, CBS, NBC News, where if you wanted to get the news, everyone was watching, you know, at seven o'clock at night, one of these three kind of mainstream news programs. And then when you have the advent of the cable in the 1990s, Marcus's argument is that you end up getting first a whole lot of people opting out of watching the news because all of a sudden at seven o'clock, you can watch lots of other things. You can watch HBO, you can watch Golf Channel, you can watch whatever you want to watch. But you also get the emergence of these kind of partisan news, in particular, as you said, Fox News appearing, where people could go in and get into a situation where you could see news that only came from the perspective that you wanted the news to come from. Marcus makes the point that that's the big change, right? Where we go from everyone getting exposed to similar information to the cable news era. By comparison, I think, I don't even think it's that controversial. It's that social media actually exposes people to a wider diversity of views than cable news does. Then the cable era where you can really select into, I just want to see Fox News. Like if I log, if I'm turning on the television and I watch MSNBC, I'm not going to hear a crazy uncle espousing some conspiracy theory in the middle of watching MSNBC. Same thing on the other side, right? Like, and so, but with social media, we're constantly interacting with people from different areas. And as I said, one of the first big papers we wrote in CSMAP was showing just that like, Yes, there are echo chambers online. There tends to be a lot of what's known as homophily online, where you associate with people and social networks who have similar political views to you. But these are not really kind of hermetically sealed echo chambers, the same way that in cable news, if you're watching Fox News, you're just getting Fox News. Let's go back for a minute to the research that you've conducted on social media. 
because we really are in a point in time where I think there's some sort of effort underfoot to do something vis-a-vis CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States with respect to TikTok. Although I would point out there are people who, because it generates ad revenue, make a living basically posting videos on TikTok, maybe stashing away some money for their kids' college education. But I'd like to ask you about this particular platform, given where it's located, you know, sort of given who's in control of it. And given we are talking about the PRC, where billionaires have a tendency to disappear for a couple of weeks and return re-educated and more quiet, how on earth would anyone be able to evaluate anything that's posted on TikTok or anything vis-a-vis data? And how realistic is it for Congress or the executive branch to reach any sort of meaningful conclusion about anyone's ability to conduct a risk assessment about TikTok? I mean, you know, set up some sort of a mitigation agreement with TikTok under CFIUS. I mean, how could you actually even pull that off? Okay, so I think there's two distinct different questions here, and it's important to keep them separate. One question is, what are the owners of TikTok doing with the data that they collect about videos people are watching, right? And that is a question we can ask every, we should ask the owners of every social media platform, what do you do with the data that you have? We tend to think the American ones, they use that data to try to make money. And it's a legitimate question to ask when you have a company that's owned it by China, whether or not there are other political purposes to which that data is being put. But the reality is the type of work I do I have no idea what's going on with that. Like, I can't actually tell you anything about what's happening with the back end of TikTok data, who that data is being turned over, who's analyzing that data. And that is a legitimate question, I think, for people ask. I would, though, take a tiny little bit of humility here because the rest of the world is constantly giving all of their data to American-owned social media companies, right? And so I think you have the rest of the world who, you know, asking similar questions about, well, you know, we should be we should be humble about the fact that people are giving a ton of data globally to Facebook, to Twitter, to YouTube, to Google, all of which are American companies. And other people in the world may be asking the same question about this. We as Americans tend to think the state is not collecting data from our social media companies, but we all know there's issues of subpoenas and there's issues of questions and stuff like that. So it's by dint of saying, we should be humble about this because we have many of the dominant platforms are American, but it's certainly a legitimate question to ask for a Chinese owned platform. That's question number one. That's sort of outside my remit, outside the type of work that we do. Question number two is the sort of, could TikTok be being used to try to manipulate the views of Americans? So if you think about like the Russian foreign influence attempt on Twitter, could TikTok just be like a much bigger, you know, version of that on steroids instead of just introducing a few Twitter accounts and a few Facebook accounts? Have you introduced a whole platform to try to manipulate people? And in that case, again, you can break this down into a number of subsets of questions. One is, how hard or easy is it to change people's views about political issues on social media? Totally legitimate question to ask, right? We have these kind of crazy examples from the Russian trolls of 2016 of like literally getting, you know, trying to stir up protest movements and getting people to show up at a protest on both sides. On the other hand, you have the research that we just released in our Nature Communications article about a month ago, where we did a systematic study of exposure to Russian trolls on Twitter and whether there was any real relationship between how many tweets you were exposed to from these Russian trolls or whether you were exposed to them at all 
and whether there was any seemed to be any change in your opinions about policies or your preferences for candidates. In that study, we found that what was going on on Twitter from these Russian trolls, it was sort of a drop in the bucket compared to what people were getting from media, what they were getting from politicians. We also found that exposure to these Russian trolls was just heavily concentrated in a very small section of the population that was overwhelmingly pro-Trump anyway. And somewhat not surprisingly, we didn't really find much of a relationship between exposure to these Russian trolls and people changing their opinions over the course of the campaign. But, you know, that was a drop in the bucket. Could something like TikTok be used in this way? The answer is, we don't know the answer to this question. And it loops back to where we started this conversation. The way we're going to find out the answer to these questions is by rigorous research, rigorous scientific research, trying to test, A, the effect of being exposed to these TikTok videos, but B, also trying to get a handle on what's happening on these platforms, which comes back to our question where we started of data access and the importance of data access and making it possible for researchers to get access to data coming out of Twitter to try to figure out what is going on on the platform. Well, I know you've become active, sort of trying to get access right now to Twitter's API and that they're, the, the sands there do appear to be shifting. How on earth would you get access to data from a platform like TikTok, one? And two, what is the importance? Why is it in the public interest for this kind of data to remain available? Is it so important that it's worth legislating? Yes, to the, your last question, that's my answer. No, and that's the answer, and it's actually the answer to the first part of your question. So look, there are essentially three ways that researchers can get access to data, right? Like one is researchers can really work around the company, kind of scrape websites, or do the kinds of things like we do, like recruit panelists to participate in studies, and then we install special browsers that collect the data that's rendered on their screen, and then we're able to study that. We have their permission to study it, and you know that's one way to do it. Another way is with these APIs that are made by platforms to make data available for people who want to use that data. And so one way we can get avail access to TikTok data is if TikTok comes out with a research API. And there's good reasons, I think, for TikTok to want to come out with a research API. So if that happens in the future, then we'll have access to more data and we'll be able to do more studies. As I said earlier in the podcast, the reason we know so much what happens on Twitter is Twitter for a long time made it pretty easy for researchers to get access to Twitter data. The other way is to legislate it. And this is exactly, by the way, what has happened in the European Union. The European Union has said these VLOPs, which they call them, very large online platforms, they are now required if they operate in the European Union to make data available to qualified researchers who want to study the impact of those platforms on society. I think how can we get TikTok data in the hands of researchers that we can then use it to inform public policy? We can legislate it. TikTok can voluntarily make the data available. We can legislate it. We can have things that are in between that. People can continue to work on figuring out ways to collect data, even in the absence of APIs. So there are a bunch of options. In this way, I don't think TikTok is actually any different from the other platforms. We have an interest in knowing how this platform is, in, is impacting society, much like we have an interest in knowing how Google impacts society, much like we have an interest in knowing how the meta platforms impact society, much like we're gonna have an interest in knowing how GPT chat you know, impacts society. So it's similar in those ways, in terms of the fact that people, Americans are using it and we wanna know what the impact is here. Why is it important? It's important, I think, you know, you can see why it's important just from the very nature of our conversation. We start off a conversation, you say, people are really worked up about this. And then I say, well, we have some research on that. And we show, you know, what we think is happening there. Ideally, we for all these things that people are worked up, we have lots of research on it. Because the reality is, when you go to make public policy, 
based on anecdotal observations, based on what are catchy talking points for, you know, people on morning talk shows to talk about, right? You, you have to run the risk. Maybe you make really good policy. Maybe those things are right. But maybe you end up making really bad policy. Maybe you make bad decisions as policymakers. And so, you know, we always argue that this is why data access is sort of like the prime mover of regulation. We want to know why is it important for us to know? People are worried about TikTok's impact on society. People are worried. And, you know, we talk about politics. You're a national security podcast. We're a center for social media and politics. We're a politics research center. But, you know, there are other questions. There's questions about health. There's questions about emergency response. There's all sorts of really important questions we can be asking here. The only way we're going to get rigorous answers to these questions is if the data is available for researchers who are trained to do this kind of rigorous research and for researchers in particular who aren't employed by the platforms and therefore are incentivized to publish their findings and put them into the public domain. That's how we get informed as a society. I mean, the same way we want to make decisions based on good engineering or based on good physics, you know, it's the same thing. We should be wanting to make policy decisions based on good social scientific understanding of these social processes. Looking at your history, understanding Russia, I wonder as you look at the conflict right now and you've looked at things like political influence through social media platforms, what you think Russia is doing right now and what you think it could do in order to sort of influence the trajectory of the conflict that it started and how access to things like API data would be helpful to a better understanding of what's occurring and maybe would suggest ways in which that could be mitigated. Let's start with a a few of those things. So, So first, Russia, Russia and the war in Ukraine. I think Russia went into this war thinking that it had achieved a level of fluency and expertise in sort of foreign influence attempts to kind of manage media narratives around the world that it was very proud of itself after 2016. And, you know, it had spent years trying to run these kind of campaigns in Ukraine. And, and you saw this before the invasion, right? Russia had these narratives that it was trotting out before the invasion. What were the narratives? The narratives, they would be welcomed as conquerors, right? Like Russians were being terribly mistreated, mistreated within Ukraine. And the Russians, Russian speakers within Ukraine would be thrilled to have the Russians come in. Ukrainians hated their own government and they would be happy to see Russian troops. Ukraine was run by, run by a bunch of Nazis, which was always one of the stranger ones, given that Ukraine has a Jewish president, right? But all these narratives were out there. And then something incredible happened, which was in the first couple of weeks of the war, it just became apparent that most of these things were not true because of images coming out because of Zelensky being an incredible communicator, but because of the speed at which we lived. You know, the Russians have manipulated the digital information environment to try to inject their content. But what they lost sight of the fact was that that digital information content, it made it impossible to claim that the Russians were just rolling to victory or that Ukrainians were rising up and welcoming Russian conquerors here coming into the country. And it really quickly changed the narrative. And I think when we write the history of this war, the sort of use by Ukraine of media, the pre-bunking by Joe Biden coming out and saying the Russians will say X and then the Russians said X and saying the Russians will do Y, the Russians do Y. I think that played a crucial role in helping to cement European unity because the, the speed at which these Russian attempts at disinformation aimed at the European population, at the Americans as well, the speed at which they kind of fell apart I think that put tremendous pressure on the European governments to band together and support Ukraine. I mean, at this point, almost a year in, we kind of take the European support for Ukraine as a given, but it really was uncertain in those weeks before the war that this was gonna be what happened. 
A second piece of this is what's going on within Russia itself. Dan Treisman and Sergei Guryev have this new book out called Spin Dictators, and Putin was the sort of classic element of the spin dictator. And, you know, I think Putin has, has revealed himself in recent years, and especially in this past year, he's moved beyond spin dictator just into ordinary dictator mode and is relying increasingly on repression. But what he's learned from his period as spin dictator, we absolutely see that this has been domestic politics within Russia has been an important piece of this in controlling the media narrative domestically within Russia, cutting off access to Facebook and Instagram. The great puzzle to me is why Russia still doesn't cut off access to YouTube. And I, we could have a, probably a long conversation about why this is the case. But they did take moves to sort of clamp down on their own population and really, really drive the media narrative within Russia. The third piece of it is, is there's a world out there besides the West and the United States and its traditional allies, which is the sort of global South. And I think Russia has continued to use the mechanisms that it has built up over the years to promulgate its view of foreign affairs, its views of how the world is set up in countries far beyond Europe. If you wanna look at one of the failures of the war from the West perspective, is the failure to get India on board with sanctions. The fact that South Africa is doing you know, military exercises with Russia and China. And so I think the Russian initial push to use their kind of disinformation framework to try to keep Europe fractured failed spectacularly. On the larger level, we're still in, as we will be in all conflicts now, there is always a kind of information phase of these conflicts. And that is continuing and that's continuing to go forward. You also asked this question about what's important about social media for identifying these kind of foreign influence attempts. There's been a lot of discussion over the last two weeks about Twitter changing its API access. And in particular, making a number of changes that will make it difficult to maintain really large data collections. And I just wanna take this opportunity since it's a national security podcast to talk about some work that we did with CSMAP and then in collaboration with Jake Shapiro in his lab at Princeton. One of the things that we did, we published a paper in Scientific Advances trying to lay out methods for identifying foreign influence campaigns when they're taking place on social media platforms. Now, we know that the platforms themselves have all sorts of sophisticated ways for doing this, but like everything else, we're then at the mercy of the platforms to whether they want to tell us about it or tell us when they've done it or not. But so we were trying to figure out, could we do this without the cooperation of the platforms? And one of the key things to being able to try to identify what a foreign influence campaign looks like is you have to have a baseline of what sort of normal behavior on the platform looks like. That requires a lot of data to be able to do that. It requires a lot of data to try to identify a sample of people online and then to keep up to date with what they're doing and what's on there. So this is a perfect example of when you take back and restrict access to data for researchers, these are actually questions that have national security implications to them. And it becomes much harder to do this kind of research. Or to give another example, the study I was telling you about earlier on the podcast that we recently did about exposure to these Russian foreign influence campaign in 2016, we had a sample of people, we knew everyone they followed on Twitter, and then we collected all the tweets from everybody they followed. That was 1.2 billion tweets, right? If the proposed changes go through from Twitter, that's a kind of study we won't be able to do in the future. It just won't be possible. We won't have access to enough data to try to be able to do these, this kind of work we're doing. And we're a well-funded research lab. You know, there's all sorts of other things we're gonna lose from all the graduate students out there who are you know, writing papers for dissertations using this data, some of whom are gonna come up with really important insights 
right, about questions that we as a society care about. Loads of them we've talked about before, but some of them are going to be related to national security. And it's like a whole bunch of research that won't get done if these changes go into effect. You also wanted to say something about sort of Russia's use of other means of communicating its influence efforts. And part of this is because, you know, we're going to go into the history of China's foreign influence campaign here in the next couple of weeks with some of our guests. And Russia, outside of this whole 2016 election thing, which I'm sure everybody's kind of tired of hearing about, can you talk a little bit? I don't think people are quite aware of all the various that we've heard of things like RT, but can you discuss a little bit what they've done and what they're doing right now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this this raises a really important point, which is that we tend to focus in on a particular platform. And what we want to not lose track of is that human beings don't live on one platform. They don't also only live on social media, right? Like when you think about people who are making up their minds about politics, who to vote for, how they feel about people from the other political party, what they think about democracy, about the legitimacy of elections, they exist in very complicated ecosystems. People can be on multiple social media platforms, but even if they're not, they're also watching television. They're also talking to their neighbors. They're also listening to the radio. Some people even still read newspapers, right? People are reading magazines. So I think this is a really important thing when we think about these foreign influence attempts, because we do tend to think about them siloed, like, oh, there are these Twitter accounts that exist here, or there are these Facebook ads that were bought here, or what's going to happen with TikTok. But the Russians, as you said, one of the things they did was they took a look at the world and saw BBC and CNN as the big things that were available all over the planet, CNN International and BBC. And they said, we want to be able to have a say in this discussion. By the way, so have the Chinese have done the exact same thing. And so the Russians do have these English language news media and actually, and they have it in Spanish and they have it in Italian and they have it in Portuguese. I mean, they have RT, we could talk a long time about are the people better than I to, to come on. Bob Ortung at the uh, in, at GW done, has done a ton of research on RT. But the general idea here is that there is this English language forward-facing Russian, essentially, and in some cases, exactly state-owned media sources. So one thing that we're trying to do at CSMAP is we're constantly trying to push the envelope on getting a sense of this kind of more complex information environment that people find themselves in, in the digital information age. And so one project that we're doing right now is that instead of just looking at what's going on on social media with the Russians, we're actually looking at these English language news sources or state-owned news sources or propaganda, whatever you want to call them, but RT, Sputnik, and then TASS and Pravda also have English language productions. And what we're trying to figure out is the extent to which these English language Russian publications have been driving conversations and driving in particular media coverage about the war in the United States. And eventually we're gonna try to figure out if they do this in China as well. And so this is another example of like trying to gather up, you know, we have we have collected tons of newspaper, tons of articles that have been published by these Russian English language media sources. We've got tons of articles published by US media sources from both high quality media sources and low quality media sources. And what we're working on now is trying to develop new kind of cutting edge techniques to do automated methods of narrative tracing so that we can have machines that are able to pick up if the Russians suddenly start talking about biological weapons in Ukraine. Remember, that was like a big deal for about three weeks in May of 2022. Who picks up on that in other media? 
Does that suddenly get covered? I mean, eventually what we would like to do, it's been, you know, it's taken us about a year to build up the infrastructure to collect all these articles just in the United States and in, and a few in China. Eventually we would love to be able to build this infrastructure up larger for other parts of the world as well. But I think social media and sock puppet accounts and bots and trolls, it's very all very seductive and it's all very exciting to think about. But we don't want to take our eye off the ball on some of these other more traditional channels that have been used for influence for decades, but can be turbocharged in the kind of digital information era. I do think that there could be a situation in which Congress might legislate access to this, bumping up against things like trade secrets, you know, intellectual property and the like, which I think is something of a not insignificant legal stumbling block here. But I think there's also a tendency right now to want to just manage these things under CFIUS, which would then mean a government lawyer basically would have to figure out whether compliance is occurring or the government would have to hire fleets and armies, numbers of people to make the kind of review of what's ongoing even if they got limited access to this data. I, I just don't know that I, I see a clean solution here, given the level of discourse that's occurring right now with respect to TikTok, which is twofold. One, put the thing under a CFIUS mitigation agreement that's so stringent it can barely function, and two, just collapse the entire thing and make it illegal. So it's important to talk to somebody like you who's got his head on very tight and has looked at this for years using data-driven research. So I really appreciate you. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thanks for the kind words. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk. And, you know, and I do think it's valuable for the community of people who listen to this podcast and who are interested in this podcast to realize that the research that we do using the data from these platforms, we have entered a world where foreign influence attempts, as you said, you know, look, there's been foreign influence attempts have been going on as long as there's been states, right? We can go back to ancient Greek and ancient Rome, but we're in a different world, right? Where it's much easier to break down boundaries. We're about to go into a world where language barriers are going to be greatly reduced, right? With GPT chat, you know, and, and this is just only these generative models are only going to get better and better and making it easier to get information. I do think it's really important to remember that when we talk about this, yes, there are these domestic politics components, there are clearly super important health components, but there are national security components too. This is an environment which is much more open than what we were previously used to, right? We didn't have newspapers that wash up upon the shore, but you can sit in anywhere around the world and produce content that appears on people's computers anywhere around the world. And so when we say it's important to have data access so that researchers can understand what's happening on these platforms, part of that is to understand national security components. You know, we published this, just to be totally clear, we published this paper saying like, we think the Russian foreign influence attempt on Twitter didn't really have much of an impact, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't a national security threat. Like we had a rival, a nuclear armed rival trying to interfere in U.S. elections, in the sort of sanctity of our democratic process, right? Whether they did it well or not doesn't change the fact that we, as a national security community, need to be concerned and need to be thinking about how we're going to protect ourselves from these attempts. In the future, countries might get better at it. You know, if you think about TikTok as a platform that could be leveraged, that's like a hundred times stronger or a million times stronger than a few accounts on Twitter or Facebook. So I really appreciate you having me on here today. I really appreciate your listeners taking the time. Totally happy to come back and talk again about future topics and any anything we didn't get to today that, in which you're interested. We would love to have you back. So we'll hold you to that. All right. Our guest tonight has been Professor Joshua Tucker of NYU, whose work you should read. We're going to hyperlink a lot of it. Um, he's also written a book with friend of the cast, Nate Persili. Um, We're going to hyperlink to a vendor so you can also take a look at that. 
his research, just in case you uh, are coming in at the end of this podcast, which you should not be, don't do that. Like you're riding your bike and you weren't paying attention like sometimes I do. I just want to recap here a little bit. His studies have looked at the effects of network diversity on tolerance, partisan echo chambers, online hate speech, the effects of exposure to social media on political knowledge, online networks and protests, disinformation and fake news. I mean, you really need to start looking at the things that he has written. Thanks for listening to NSLT. We hope you'll share this episode with a friend. We think you should talk about the issues that we've talked about today and drive towards solutions. You are the future, particularly if you're young. You need to start thinking about this thing and rely less on social media, of course, for your information. If you had feedback for us and you'd like to reach out to us, guess where you can do that? On Twitter at ABANATSEC. You can also email us at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. The writer and producer of NSLT is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Our editor and my co-producer is Francis Burkham. Our program manager is Rebecca Salido, and my co-producer is Holly McMahon, as well as the incredible members of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Think deeply, reclaim your attention span, and we'll see you next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.